The hottest story of the week continues to be the hottest story of the week. The Senate race in Ohio. It's been big news ever since Rob Portman said he would not seek re-election. It continues to be. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Chris Warnowski. You guys ready to talk about the Senate race for another day? Always. Way more than one more day. (laughs) (laughs) Every day for the next two years. Let's begin. He was in, maybe. Now he's out, definitely. Less than 24 hours after we broke the news that Amy Acton might run for U.S. Senate, Lieutenant Governor John Houston announced he won't. Are these two things related, Jane Cahoon? (laughs) Okay, okay. This is a here's a huge disclaimer. Anything we're going to say about this is just complete speculation, right? We we don't (laughs) excel in. (laughs) <laughs> but I know, yeah, you're definitely going to have fun with this with this one, Chris. It was it was a pretty quick decision on Houston's part, and it, and it came pretty soon after the news that Acton was considering running for the Senate seat, which, as you said, is going to become open because of Rob Portman's decision. And um, you know, we speculated yesterday on how weird it would be for for Houston to go up against somebody like Amy Acton. You know, they both were key players and. Governor Mike DeWine's coronavirus strategy, and Houston still is, as a matter of fact, and they both know a lot about what happened, you know, behind the scenes as decisions were being made about reopening and and so forth. But anyway, I will say this announcement that Houston made not to run is is very consistent with his long-term plan. He's long aspired to be the governor. He was a candidate the last time around before he agreed to become DeWine's running mate. And remaining lieutenant governor puts him in the best position to achieve that goal. He he pretty much said as much in his statement. He stressed that his passion was at the state level. Um, it was interesting the way he did word his statement, though. He said, after contemplating running for the Senate for 48 hours, I was reminded how much I enjoy the challenges of my present job. So, And his statement came through the Ohio Republican Party, interestingly, the same day that uh, party chairman Jane Timken confirmed her strong interest in in running for for the seat. So the dynamics just continue to be interesting. Well, there, there are a few things here that are worth looking at. The, the idea that there's this ladder that you move up, you know, you go from the secretary of state to attorney general to lieutenant governor to governor. It's like really pathetic because it's a democratic process and you shouldn't feel that right. But on the other hand, has any lieutenant governor moved into the governor's seat? Oh boy. Okay. You're stumping me here. Not, yeah, not in my, not in my time here. It hasn't happened. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no. it was, well, actually it was Bob. Uh, uh, Mary Taylor. No, no, she didn't become governor. Obviously she ran, but was yeah. Bob Taft so, a lieutenant governor at any point. Uh, I, I think there? he was secretary of state when he ran for governor. Yeah. So, sure. so the idea that that puts him in the best position, it's like, well, it's never happened and it's six years away. I look, I do think, I mean, I thought it was fascinating that he threw his name into the mix before anybody else. I mean, Portman's announcement was still hot and he said he was thinking about it, which was smart if you're going to run to get to be front of the pack. But 24 hours later to say I'm out, I think is fascinating, especially because he shared the stage with Amy Acton day after day after day in those briefings. And there's still this mystery about why she really left. And and if he knows that she left because she felt undermined by the governor, something she's never once said, and it's only speculation, 
that would come out in a campaign and that would be ugly for his legacy because he's the guy that was representing the business side in those arguments. So he may just, he may have said, Man, I don't want to mix it up with her. Um, her popularity is really high and I have a vulnerability there and I have a really safe job. I mean, it, right. it, it's, it's kind of unthinkable at this point that DeWine would not be reelected. He's still very popular I mean, he's going to be challenged from the right and the left. Um, and, and he's got baggage. I mean, there are a lot of people that think he's been fumbling the coronavirus really since the, after the first early months when he made headlines for doing it so boldly. But the odds are incumbent. He's done. He, people trust him. He's been on TV every day. Everybody knows him that he, he could win. So Houston would be guaranteed a position with authority for the next six years. You know, it's it's for real. Um, I just, what does everybody else think? Does, do people think that Amy Acton's uh, possibility of being in the race changed his mind, or do you think it's something else? I, I feel like when he said he was reminded, this is Laura Johnston, maybe he went and talked with DeWine, and DeWine was like, don't do it. And he was like, okay. I mean, it, it wasn't a lot of time for you to, to like, you know, be philosophical about it. It was two days. Or maybe his wife was like, nope, I don't know. But it seemed pretty definitive. Well, there is that. I mean, I do think I, I do recall him not talking about challenging Sherrod Brown for the Senate because he didn't want to have to go to Washington because of his family. Um, I do remember conversations about that a few years ago because he would have been a pretty good candidate to challenge Sherrod Brown, much better than Jim Renese was. But his, his feeling was, I, I like being home with my family. And maybe that's what he was reminded of. You're right, Laura. His wife might have said, hey, hey, remember, we're not doing this. <laughs> well, <laughs> we it could be that all along he never intended to run for Senate. He just wanted to get his name out there. I mean, that's totally possible. Yeah, but his name's out there now. Is like, is he afraid of Amy Acton? <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think maybe it's, it's, it's good to to have limits on your ambition. Maybe he realizes he, he wouldn't succeed at this and he doesn't want to go out and do a losing effort. I applaud for somebody for just not having just blind ambition and, and, and making a decision to say, you know, I, I think I'm probably more suited to be the governor of Ohio. I, you know, he comes across as somebody who, who, you know, a hometown kind of got, you know, he, he has a little bit of that DeWine streak in him, that aw shucks. But no one would accuse him of not being ambitious. Sure. I, I, <laughs> He's I know, one of the most but, ambitious politicians in Ohio. But, but being the governor is nothing to sneeze. You know, I mean, that's a good, that's a right. good position. And that's, that's a lot that's of guaranteed, though. You keep speaking like that's guaranteed. It's never happened. No lieutenant governor we can remember did that. I mean, that it's up to the voters of Ohio as to whether he might be different from other lieutenant governors. He's he's got a lot more prominence and seems a lot more active in the administration than other lieutenant governors who, you know, they joke and say light governor, you know, (laughs) and that's really not him. Well, I think he would have been a great candidate for the Senate. I think he'll make a great candidate for governor, but I don't think there's any certainty he'd win either. Only time will tell. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How might the coronavirus pandemic preserve the current size of Cleveland City Council at 17 members? Laura Johnston, the odds were that this year we would most certainly be dropping to 16 or 15 because of population shrinkage, but that may not happen for till the middle of the decade. 
It might not. And this is a really great story by Bob Higgs, uh, who really explained the issue very clearly. It's a timing issue. So the population numbers from the 2020 census probably will not be made official by the deadline imposed by the city charter in order to adjust its ward map in time for this election. And it's a really early deadline. And I don't know that they've ever really made it. Um, but the census date is often released later than the date, which is February 16th. And um, so if they don't get it in time, they're going to have to wait four years, according to the city charter. And that would be for the next council election. And and we wouldn't see a, a drop in, in the number of council members. However, Kevin Kelly says he does, the president of the council says he doesn't think they're going to drop below 17. But regardless, they would have to change the boundaries of the wards because some neighborhoods like Ohio City and Tremont have grown while others have shrunk. He's out of his mind if he doesn't <laughs> think they're going to shrink. I mean, the, the, the problem is that they base that, you know, they were 21 when I covered them. At one point, I think they were 27 or more, 31. Uh, and, and so, yeah, there were too many. But at some point, th- this population-based formula, I think, starts to harm the residents of Cleveland because Cleveland is a big city. And the, the, the ward council person represents the people throughout their ward. It's the person that gets the call when there's tall weeds next door or somebody dumps trash on the street. And if you start to create too big a geography for that, it becomes very unwieldy and reduces representation. And I, you know, if this happens where they don't do it now, I might, I wouldn't be surprised to see them actually seek a charter change to stop this, that they've gotten to a size where geographically they don't want to shrink anymore. You're hearing that. There was that phony effort that actually was propped up by First Energy, I think, to reduce the size of council that Tony George was peddling a couple of years back and finally ran away from when the light was shown on him. That makes me wonder it, where we had this debate that, that it's like this is disenfranchisement. Why would voters of Cleveland shrink their representation? And at some point you're going to do that geographically. So this may give the council an opening to finally, you know, get things together and stop this population-based formula. Well, and you're right. And I was one of the people, you know, we talked a lot on the po- this podcast about that um, idea to shrink council. And at first, it seems like a really great idea. Like, why do we need all these people on the payroll? But when you realize that the, the charter was set up for those council people to be the direct link between citizens and city hall, then yes, what you're saying makes a lot of sense that they are these these council members do get calls about barking dogs and garbage and weeds and traffic. Um, and so, yeah, if I were living in the city of Cleveland, I wouldn't want, you know, 10,000 more people calling my city council member. I'd want, you know, I'd want a close connection. Well, the pandemic might give them a chance to preserve it at its current size, uh, which which would be one of the very, very, very few silver linings of this pandemic. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What would it mean if an Ohio lawmaker pulls off making Ohio a Second Amendment sanctuary? Chris Ranowski, I, I don't get this. It, it seems like what they're trying to say is, is that they want home rule for Ohio, which is interesting coming from a Republican legislature that does everything it can to stop home rule in the cities. But what would it actually mean? I mean, would this defy federal law if they did it? And I get it. This is really a story that Jane Coon should be talking about. But Jane Staff wrote pretty much all the stories yesterday. <laughs> I had it spreading around. 
I think what it means is state rep uh, Mike uh, Loichek will have something largely symbolic to put on his next campaign flyers. Um, but it what what he he's proposing this what they call the Second Amendment Sanctuary State Act, which is it's something that exists in other states, and and there, it actually started back in Illinois, I think, back in the nineties, and and it's largely a symbolic gesture that is designed to make reasonably, I, I think they want to just maintain their gun rights. They're, they, they're saying that they, they want to, um, you know, not have any limitations on, on, on guns. They, they don't want Joe Biden to pass any restrictions on tracking firearms at gun shows, taxing weapons and ammunition. They, they want to codify what they believe is their Second Amendment rights, and they want to do it through these things. It's, it's modeled basically after the the sanctuary cities for immigration, and and they have this is you know just one in a number of of, of pro gun measures that the legislature has passed in recent years, including right. removing the ban on concealed carry on, right. on college campuses. But, but put it put it into practical terms. So mm-hmm. so say. Congress, you know, does what they'll never do. And they said w- w- gun shows no longer are an escape. Any transaction at a gun show has to be recruited, has to be tracked across the land, right? Mm-hmm. That it, it's now covered. I mean, Ohio can't just decide to defy that. That's federal law, right? I mean, it's the feds can enforce the federal law in, in Ohio if they're trying to stop gun trafficking across the country. So it's kind of meaningless, right? Yeah, there's a lot of of legal theory that basically says that if if these things get tested in the courts, it, it, they won't hold they won't hold up. That that the states cannot overrule. It, it's it's the same way that like Cleveland can't overrule state law. That that we can't pass our own our own gun restrictions in the city. It, I mean, the the state supreme court has basically said you can't do that. Well, the same applies. From the state to the federal level, that that if if they want to put reasonable restrictions on on gun shows or or whatever, you're right. They it, it likely would not hold up in court. I mean, I it, would, though, it would be hard fought, and and I guarantee you that it would it would be a, cl- a close call in this Supreme Court as it stands. But you know, I, I think that might be the X factor that might make it a little more unpredictable as as it stands now but jane Jane cahoon i i would think that if this law were to pass that a city like cleveland might immediately use the legal theory that that this legislature is employing to start making cleveland a sanctuary city from states liberal gun laws i mean (laughs) you, you can't how can you as a legislature have it both ways in one you're prohibiting the cities from passing their own laws while you're in open defiance of the federal government. It makes no sense. Yeah. Does this guy have any credibility at all? Or is he just, he's a new guy and he's trying to, Hey, I'm pro gun, I'm pro gun, you know, and, and I'm pro Trump. Yeah, He doesn't have much of a profile. However, you know, this, this legislature is very strong on gun rights. So you just never know with, with something like this. I think part of it is, you know, they think Joe Biden's going to go wild with executive power and they think, you know, it might not be a federal law, but they, they want to protect themselves from anything he could do in an executive manner or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's just one. You expect responsibility out of these guys. And this is just a completely irresponsible law to propose. And he's trumpeting at it like he's some hero. Again, at a time when when the governor, the Republican governor, has put forth a number of, of reform proposals 
that include things like background check. You know, I mean, this this would be a move in the complete opposite direction, I think, of what what DeWine was looking for. But although DeWine just I mean, did, standard ground, yeah, right. So, so he did. Like, he he may not some uh, hypocrisy coming from the governor's office as well. Correct. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How does Congressman Jim Jordan hold so many cards in the game that is the Republican battle for the U.S. Senate in Ohio? Jane Cahoon, we had a fascinating story yesterday analyzing the current state of things. And it's it's odd because none of us think Jim Jordan is actually going to run for the Senate because he <laughs> likes what he's doing. But he does have some something to say about who ultimately does. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure you totally agree with this analysis, but it certainly w- was interesting. But it, a lot of Ohio Republicans think that Jordan, if he gets in, has the best shot of clearing the field from from other candidates in an eventual GOP primary, partly because he's seen as the most likely to land an endorsement from former President Donald Trump, you know, even despite Trump's murky future here. He's big in Ohio, okay? But as you said, a lot of people think he really has no intention of, of getting in the race because he prefers his his platform in the in the House and has aspirations of one day becoming House Speaker. But um, but even if he doesn't run, they're saying he could play this definitive role by just even teasing a, a run and maybe eventually offering an endorsement to to someone else. So we have some other top tier candidates who are kind of watching him and and waiting for him to to make his intentions. Uh, clear. So he, um, for instance, uh, Mike Gonadakis, the the head of Ohio Right to Life, who's big in Republican politics, said, uh, Jim Jordan, in my opinion, is either going to be a king or a king maker. A lot of that has to do with not only his his name recognition and his his popularity among the Republican base due to his unwavering devotion to Trump, you know, during impeachment and, and all sorts of other issues. But um He's got a lot of money, too, um, and his work with the Freedom Caucus gives him access to a deep fundraising network. So, you know, you got people like Jane Timken, who's also a strong Trump ally, and, and uh, you know, perhaps she wouldn't get in maybe if he did, or uh, they say Josh Mandel might not get in if Jordan gets in. So you, uh, you, ne- you never know. Um and then I should say that while he would be, while Jordan would be a formidable candidate in the Republican primary, he he does have drawbacks as a general election candidate because he's he's so polarizing. So um, I just don't know. I uh, you know I might side with the people who think, nah, he's not he's not going to do it. I don't think he'll run. I I I'm not sure. I you're right. I'm not sure. I agree. He holds that many cards. As many people as like him, there's there's just as many that hate him. I mean, it's not, it's not indifference. There are people that think he is truly an evil guy. We hear from him all the time. There's <laughs> Did also- you hear what Sherrod Brown said yesterday? Yeah, um, it's like last on the list, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, because he has a pretty good working relationship with, with Rob Portman, but he's just like, that guy shouldn't even be holding public office. Yeah. Well, but well he's, he's pushed the completely false narrative completely false narrative that the election was stolen. He has undermined one of our most sacred institutions with a flat out lie. And then he lied about doing it, even though there's video of him doing it. I mean, look, you can make a very strong argument that what he's done for the past year 
is as anti-American and anti-democracy as anybody that's ever been in Congress. So, you know, I get what Sherrod's saying. I mean, Sherrod will work with just about anybody. But how do you work with a guy who was trying to overthrow the Constitution that he has sworn to protect? Chris Ranowski. Well, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but I, one of the one of the things that I think Sherrod might be a little worried about he and Portman work together very well on things like nominating judges and U.S. attorneys and stuff like that. And Portman is not too far to the right when it comes to who he suggests for, you know, they, they really do sincerely work together to, to recommend people to the presidential administration on who, you know, even during the Trump administration, Sheridan and, and Portman work very closely. And we ended up not having people who were overly radical put into those positions for a lot of these, a lot of these judgeships in Ohio. So, you know, I, I think there might be some concern there that if, if Jordan were to, you know, somehow become the Senator for the state that they would have to, you know, that that would be become a much more difficult process for Sherrod. And, 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 you know, he probably wouldn't have as much say. So, you know, I can, I can see that, but it's also, you know, very weird to say that like, he's not one of us. I, I, I sent this to Jane right after the story published. It just, it seemed like a weird move. It, it, it could alienate people, but maybe, you know, maybe those aren't sh- people of Sherrod thinks he can convert into Democrats, but. but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. The podcast Serial did an entire series about the Cuyahoga County justice system. Is LeBron James going to bring that series to HBO? Laura Johnston, we we talked a good bit over the years when that series was running that, you know, we, we all knew what was going on in the Cuyahoga County justice system. And a lot of the stuff that they did, I'm pretty sure they took from our reporting because they wouldn't have known about it otherwise. But this is new. LeBron who has been pretty vocal about police abuse is seizing on this series for something that could be on HBO. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. So LeBron James and Maverick Carter want to tell part of that third season of Serial, which comes from, I forget what year it ran in, but 2016 is when the reporting was done. And they dealt with several cases in Cuyahoga County over nine episodes. But this TV version is going to focus on a specific part of that with, quote, a young cop and the man he's accused of beating. So it's a still untitled project. It wants to illuminate the deeply flawed inner workings of a middle American courthouse and how the system impacts every person it touches, cop, lawyer, and citizens accused and victimized by crimes. So they're not naming names yet of what they're going to look at. But um, the third episode in season three did follow Emeria Spencer as he prepared to bring an excessive force lawsuit against officers in Euclid who beat him during a 2016 arrest. So that's where my head immediately went. But um, the serial host, Sarah Koenig, is a producer on this series. Well, we also had, you know, major police abuse in East sure. Cleveland in that series. Um, I Unfortunately, I was when we first heard about it, we didn't know what the focus would be. I thought they might focus on one of the judges. I mean, Serial did some tremendous work letting the judge just out himself. As, Who then was um, reelected, what, months later? Yeah, he was reelected. But but you know there were there was a lot of there were a lot of great moments in that in that series. They were up close and personal with people who'd been abused and lawyers trying to navigate it. Um, but I I think you're right. I think that Euclid case probably stands out as one that you could do. Now, you know, serial doesn't do videos, so I guess this will have to be a reenactment. That'll they'll have to be they'll have to come and shoot some video. I hope they do it in um, 
in Cleveland. It'll be interesting to see. Chris Ranowski, we did summaries, didn't we, of every episode and put in all the background case material. That's that. I hope that stuff is still visible on our site. Yeah, and oh, it looks like we're going to. It looks like we're going like to. <laughs> Chris, I was going to say it looks like we're going to have to do some more summaries of it. I guess uh, now that it's going to be a TV show. But oh yeah, we'll definitely want to cover there, that. There was there. I I I think there was a, some video of of what they're probably going to be looking at. So I if 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 their focus is on Euclid, like you're speculating, and not East Cleveland, then yeah, I think there's video of those of the incidents that were. Oh, of the incidents. Yeah, I know. But if you're going to dramatize the interviews they did i mean you know they they were they had a lot of moments in that thing but it's all on audio and if you're going to dramatize that for hbo i i I guess you could do a documentary style but um it might work better if they they do some reenactments we'll see it'll be interesting to look for you're listening to this week in the cle what is the significance for President Joe Biden of federal judge Dan Polster in Cleveland changing his status to senior judge? Christian Esky, this is kind of a big deal because he's the guy that has been overseeing the massive opioid trial that we've talked about a bunch. Um, but he's making an opening here for the new president. Right. So you kind of answered your question. Uh, he he uh so Polster is known right now nationally for for being the guy that is overseeing the massive nationwide uh, opioid litigation that involves thousands of communities. And he announced that he is going to be seeking what they call senior status, which allows him to still be a judge, but he, 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 they can, they, they have a little more discretion over what cases they take. You know, sometimes they get a different office. It, there's, there's a, there's a lot of little things that go with it. And, and it's, it's not an official retirement, but it's, it moves them in the direction of retirement. But what it does allow, it, it allows the administration to uh, nominate a new person to take the the district judge slot. So um, so Biden will have the opportunity to uh, tap Polster's successor by the summer. And we actually saw a, a wave of announcements across the country of judges who were kind of waiting for Biden to become president to announce that they were going to be seeking senior status so that, you know, Trump would not get to nominate more judges. And he did. I mean, we should point out Trump probably appointed more federal judges than any president in history. Right. I mean, he boasted about this. Um, I mean, because the remember Mitch McConnell had held up all of Obama's nominations and not not allowed the Senate to confirm Trump came in and they immediately started filling those roles. So these judges you're talking about saw that, realized that they were trying to politicize the courts and held off leaving so that there remained balance. Well, and, you know, you can give a little bit of credit to Trump as he, you know, he's, his signature goes at the bottom of whatever paperwork makes it official. But this is, that was really the McConnell Federalist Society baby. And, and, and I think it was something like 300 judges and, and three su- Supreme Court you know, seats on the Supreme Court, which is, you know, nothing to sneeze at. But, but, um, what, what's interesting is that there are a handful of other judges. There's four other judges in Northeast Ohio who, uh, already have senior status. And there are, uh, four of the 15 who, uh, are current judges who are, who qualify. So there's a possibility that we could see more of them make this move, but, we, there's no indication as of right now that that's going to happen. But 
But we'll see. I mean, this is, uh, I think Polster specifically did this because he, you know, he wanted to be replaced by somebody nominated by a Democrat. So, Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it for the discussions. Hey, I want to ask you all a question. Do you think you work harder working from home during the pandemic than you did when we were all going to the office every day? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. So the podcast, yeah. I, I harass you with the podcast, but what, why do you think that is? Is it just because you're on the phone more? It's because like you never really leave work and combined with the fact that this pandemic period has just been so jam packed with news. I mean, everybody's just busy, busy, busy. It's, it's, it's a little harder to get away from work. And it, because your your home is your work, I, I make the joke that I I don't work from home; I live at work. And, <laughs> Very and, well put. And 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 that's what it feels like. And, and so it, it, we 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 have some rules in our house about sort of making separation. I think we talked about this early on, but now my computer doesn't leave the second floor of the house. Like I leave it upstairs, and if I have to work, I go back upstairs. I, I try to keep it. I try to keep work upstairs and, and living downstairs. Yeah, it just struck me. And I, yesterday was a day where I felt like I never got off the phone or got off Teams and it got to the end of the day. I had a ton of stuff left to do. And I thought, man, it, was, it wasn't like this before. What's different? I mean, I always talk to people. So what's the difference talking to them in person or on the phone? But I think I, it's that there's nothing that has to pull you away. Like if my, I don't have to go get my kids from you know, aftercare at this point, they just come home and there's just no real stop because literally I'm not doing anything else. Yeah. That's, I mean, I, I yeah, think we, we all, all need should. a break, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If only there were someone on this podcast who could do something about it. Yeah. No, I think what Jane is saying, we all need a break from Chris. She just left out <laughs> one word. Okay. Well, thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up a week of news.